My guest today on Mission Impact is Sarah Oliveri. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your, non- your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. Sarah and I talk about how to set up systems and processes in your organization so that your work as a leader and the work of your staff is made easier, how to have a productive team meeting, and how to assess and be realistic about your current capacity. Well, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome, Sarah. It's a pleasure to be here, Carol. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'd like to start out each episode with just finding out um, from the person I'm talking with what what drew them to the work that they do and and what would you describe as your why? What motivates you? Oh, man. I mean, I think for most people who work in a nonprofit or work with nonprofits, the the fact that every day, no matter how bad things are in the world, when I wake up, I basically get to say, I'm already making the biggest impact I could probably make. Um, and my work trajectory um, is only about doing more of the same. Um, and that feels really good <laughs> when times are good and when times are bad. And, you know, I, I kind of, I think like a lot of people fall into nonprofit work. Um, they have a calling. When I was young, I went to this uh, independent private school that had just started. It was very small, not at all like a prep school, but very um, education focused. How can we be more human focused and skip forward till I'm out of elementary school? My mom ended up taking over the school. It wasn't her background, but it was one of those nonprofits that was like about to go under. It had a great mission. It did great work with kids. But from a business perspective, it had just been run into the ground and was on the verge of closing, not paying their staff. Um, And my mom was one of those people who said, well, you know, I'll try. (laughs) And she did. And it turned into a job and she grew the school. And so then skip forward a number of years where I'm working at a nonprofit and it almost was going under. It had a bunch of problems. And I was like, well, maybe I'll try taking on that and I'll take on this other piece. And my mom was there saying, yeah, you can learn bookkeeping and yeah, you can do this. And, you know, once you know how to manage the finances and manage the people and manage the programming, you're sucked in really deep pretty quickly. Um, so that's kind of like how I get started, how I got started. And there's lots in the middle, but um, that's the that's the short version. Yeah, it's been interesting for me as I've talked to various people, uh, you know, through this, this podcast and other places, how many folks have some kind of experience in their childhood that, that leads them, especially uh, often folks talking about that role model of a parent, doing something um, either, you know, engaged in the community or, you know, engaged in some way uh, with service, um, politics, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, stepping in where there's a vacuum and, and making things happen and making sure that that resource didn't, didn't go away for children. So that's awesome. So I'm, I'm curious, as a former executive director um, as of a nonprofit, what would you say was your favorite part of being an executive director. I feel like there's there's this big generational shift going on finally of uh, with new people coming into leadership. And I hear from a lot of younger folks that they're, they look at the job and they kind of shy away from it because it just seems so like undoable um, without like a real level of personal sacrifice. So I'm curious of kind of what was the, what was the upside? What, what, what did you appreciate about uh, being in that role? 
Yeah. Well, before I answer that, I have to say the secret from my clients who are mostly not young people, they feel the same way when they come <laughs> to me. They're like, I kind of hate my job, but I also don't want to quit. But we can go, we'll go into like how we get everybody out of that. My own experience as an executive director was um, I really enjoyed setting things up, scaling things up, making things run better. Um, and even though I didn't know what I know now, I was already pretty good at this whole thing about systems and processes and making things run better because that is the thing that ultimately makes the job not painful. And I really, really believe that being an executive director can be fun. Um, and it probably helped that I had this example from my mother who had started out in this organization that was in complete chaos, working a lot of hours. And by this time, when I was an executive director, she was at the tail end and she would tell me, you know, I work four days a week, partly just because she was older and partly to save money for the nonprofit. And she said, really, I spend the, a good chunk of my time playing solitaire on the computer. And that was a good thing. What it meant was she had everything running like a well-oiled machine. And now she kept an eye on everything. And whenever anything did come up, she was available. She had that time built in, right? It wasn't just she was goofing off playing solitaire. It's she kept, that's how she kept herself busy while she kept herself available to deal with things. And that's so important. Um, and I had that lesson early on that you should not be filling every minute as an executive director of your job up with tasks and projects. And um, because if you are, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you're doing it wrong. And Great systems, having a great team um, is how you do that. And so because I was good at that early on, um, you know, I was setting up programming. I was attracting great staff who were doing great things. I was attracting funding, both grants and major donors, um, and a real community quickly formed. And I, I'm, I'm a lover of delegation. So, <laughs> you know, spreading out the work amongst a lot of people made everything run quite well. Um, you know, it wasn't perfect, but I certainly was able to enjoy my job. And that to this day, like, that's what I want for all executive directors. I mean, your job, it, there's a lot of work to be done and a lot of problems to be solved, but it should feel joyful and it shouldn't feel like, opening up your veins and just bleeding for your nonprofit until you're dead. Right, right. That my uh my tagline for this podcast is, you know, working for progressive nonprofits and and nonprofit leadership without being a martyr to the cause. So, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um and I just wanted to pick up on a couple of things that you said. You talked about systems and processes and I I don't think that's the first thing that most people think of when they think of nonprofits. They think of passion and mission and vision and all of that, but um, you know, I'm I'm a systems and, and process person too, so I appreciate those. And and it's not, you know, right, as you said, it's it's not for the um I think oftentimes people get real don't want to set those up because they feel like they might be restrictive first. Second, they're always thinking about the exceptions, the 20% of does that doesn't fit into the process. And I, I feel like I I often am um talking to folks about can we identify the 80%? normally happens that you can that you can kind of predict and is kind of that regular 
you know, or, or there are some things that are within your control, like how are you doing your fundraising? How are you doing your marketing? Those kinds of things um, that that are that you can just decide what the cadence is. Um, and then also having that margin, right? Not filling up every hour so that you do have the flexibility to be able to respond when things pop up. But how, how do you um, how do you experience it with with clients in terms of helping them or helping them think through those systems and processes? Yeah. So, um, you know, skip forward a whole bunch of years and I've worked with a lot of nonprofits um, in, in addition to uh, working in nonprofits. And what I realized, I love all business, first of all. So like as much as I love nonprofits, I also love business. I love how people come together to create things that are bigger than what any one person can do. And all of the the glue that makes that happen and all the functioning, which is kind of systems and processes. Um, What I have learned is there are some key ways of operating that everybody can implement. Um, And I used to think, oh, well, it has to be customized for each organization because everyone's different. Well, as much as everyone wants to feel like they're a special snowflake, there are a lot of things, right, that you don't need to reinvent and that actually can work out of the box for you. The for-profit industry has done this already numerous times. They've created methodologies and frameworks and systems for running a business that help people run better. And so I set out to kind of make the same thing, but specifically for nonprofits, because most of the for-profit methodologies have like um, making a profit built in as like this just assumed principle, (laughs) which is not true at a nonprofit. We may very well sacrifice profits. We can have profits, but we also might sacrifice profit for mission. So um, so I've kind of put all those pieces together into an easy to implement um, way. But when I hear my clients think about, you know, systems, and so one is I'm telling them, here's this easy way to do it. Like, you don't have to be a master chef in order to follow a recipe, right? right. So I like to get, say, here's the recipe, follow it. And then they do, and then it works. And then they're like, oh my God, my staff is happier. And wow, I just took my first vacation and like I stopped working on weekends. Like, what is this magic? Let me keep following the recipe. And I think for most people, you know, that is, that's the magic and they don't need to become a master chef. But we can also talk about, you know, I would get, consider myself a master chef. I'm making recipes. We can kind of go into what that is. But um, if for those of you who like have that thought of like, ooh, processes, like that sounds restricting, then you have just experienced a bad process. A great process frees you up to do, right? You know, we talked about the 80%, the 80, 20 rule. If you've heard of it, like it's like 20% of the work does 80% of, gets 80% of the results. But then there's also like, what is that other 80% of the work? So if you can clear that 80% off and get it all running like a well-oiled machine, get it off your plate. Now you can spend 20% of your time um, focused on like the really forward stuff, usually that involves a lot of thinking, um, and problem solving. Right. And that's what, you know, your solitaire moments are about. <laughs> I'll call them as, you know, doing, having that brain time to really think through how do we move something forward that no one has figured out before. And, um, I love seeing people get that time back in their day and the results that that gets is phenomenal. Can you give me an example of one of those recipes? 
Sure. So um, a really simple one is how to run a team meeting. Meeting. Um, we have numerous types of meetings in the framework that I teach. Well, not that many. We actually only have three. Um, and the most basic one that typically replaces your staff meeting, I call it an issues meeting. But there are a few key things in it that are probably different than you're doing right now that make the meeting way, way better. Because, you know, if, if I could see your audience right now, I'd say, raise your hand if you have waste time wasting meetings or you hate meetings. And probably most of you would be raising your hand, right? So one of the things we do, it's a, the same agenda every time. And probably one of the most important things we do is we identify the issues that are facing the team but we don't discuss them when we identify them. And everybody has to get trained in don't just launch into talking about this issue or we'll be stuck talking about issues all day long. Step two is we're going to then decide which is the highest priority issue. And then step three is we're going to then talk about that issue, make sure we understand it and work through it until we've identified a solution that basically we all agree will work and then we can assign somebody to go implement it. And so by being way more intentional and systematic about the priority that we work through our issues is a game changer because first people are like, oh, we actually produced something. We produced a solution in this meeting. That's great. But when you do it consistently, like replacing your staff meeting, initially, most organizations have this like all these issues, like a long, long list. But a lot of those issues are usually symptoms of a higher priority issue. So often what happens is as you tackle the highest priority issues first, a lot of the issues that were on your list just dissolve, <laughs> resolve on their own because you hit the core underlying issue and then you don't even have to worry about tackling them. And the list gets short, short, very, very fast because of that. You're not just tackling issues meaningfully, but you're eliminating a lot of the issues because you got to the, what was really going on. Yeah. That's, that's, it's the common, um, pr uh, practice or habit, um, it, and that you described to people like they name the issue and then we start talking about it. I'm on a volunteer team right now where we're having that exact challenge and I'm planning at our next meeting to bring it up as one of our habits that's not helping us. Um, so I, I might, I might borrow that and say, well, I think we, we actually do have a list of our priorities, but, but, or, or a list of our issues. I don't know that we've done a, a good job of prioritizing them or, or even thinking about like, how are we going to sequence this that makes sense to kind of tackle one after another? So, but yeah, that habit of like, we bring it up. So we have to talk about it, like take a moment, <laughs> put it out, you know, put it in the folks don't call them parking lots anymore on the bike rack on the on the somebody else said uh that i talked to recently said you know don't call it a, a parking lot or a bike rack because th those are the place you know that's the place where those things go to die but call it an an, an on-ramp or the the runway of like the things that that we'll get to as we as we get down the runway so um but yeah fundamental i mean meetings um people spend so much time in them and so many of them are so poorly designed um, that it's it's sad that folks have to be kind of stuck in those. And then it's some there's some easy things that you can do to to make them just a little bit better. Yeah, yeah. And I would say a lot better. You know, it's actually not you know learning how to do business well 
as a for-profit or a nonprofit is not rocket science. And um, some small, easy tweaks, if you find the right ones and then really implement it, can make dramatic results. And I'd say the hardest thing in adjusting to that new kind of meeting um, right. It's not so hard, but it takes some time. And for those of you who are like Brene Brown followers, like all of her work comes into this learning to kind of bring, be vulnerable enough to bring the real issues, create that culture where people feel safe to bring that real issue to the table, that underlying core issue. And then also training your team and getting everybody used to interrupting each other saying, oh, or interrupting themselves. Like I'm, you know, I interrupt myself all the time. Like I started talking about the issue. <laughs> I started talking about the issue. I'm going to be quiet now because it's not time to talk about the issues. It's just time to like stick them on the list. <laughs> um, yeah. And that takes a little bit of adjusting because usually we're told not to interrupt each other. Um, but after a few times of giving everybody permission, anybody's allowed to interrupt anybody who starts launching into talking about an issue when it's not time for it yet. And I, the other thing that I like about what you were describing is that it it get it gets clear what we're doing in this moment. Um, and I, I try to do that when I'm working with with groups, because, um, you know, during a strategic planning process that I that generally what I work on. There are points at which you're exploring, where you're opening everything up, where you're imagining, where you're visioning, and you're maybe getting like even a little bit really out there beyond what is really feasible. There's a time for that. And then there's a time a little bit later in the process to kind of call it down and, and put some criteria on what's going to be more feasible. What what do we have the capacity for? You know, what what's really going to move our mission forward in a different way? But being clear about what you're doing in each meeting, in each session, in each portion um, really helps uh, help people have yeah a more constructive conversation and feel like they've they they knew what, what was expected of them so they could show up in a in a helpful way. Yeah, 100%. So, um you you and I'm going to use your words, you work to help nonprofits become financially sustainable world world changers. What would you say is really the key to achieving that with an organization? Um so for nonprofits specifically there are three key areas that I think they need to be focusing on. Um, first is capacity, right? So that includes who's on your team, how many team members you have, how much money you have, although money is usually a byproduct of core capacity. It's not the capacity itself. Um, and how aligned that team is, right? So the bulk of what makes up our organizations are, are people, really. So, right, who are the people and how well do they work together? And are they the right people on the team? And a lot of building that capacity has to do with creating great alignment. And that really means understanding who you are as an organization, how you behave, and then attracting people who want to behave in the same way <laughs> and all work together. So um, we can do a lot to enhance capacity by making sure we have the right people aligned in the right way and great systems and processes for um, keeping them gelled 
gelled together as a well-oiled team. Um, so capacity, right? And then actionable strategy. I always say actionable strategy, which should be assumed, but there's so many people who have strategies that they aren't taking action on. And so just to de quickly define some terms, to me, a strategy is a set of goals with a set of actions that you're going to take to achieve those goals. Um, and in the method I teach called the impact method, we always have our highest level strategic goals tied right into our tasks day to day. Um, and it kind of goes through in the impact method, we actually do strategic planning every two months. And then we map out a two month work plan. We check on that work plan every two weeks. And then each, each two week chunk, kind of everybody has their tasks that they're working on for those two weeks. So that's what I mean by like what a really actionable strategy looks like. It's like dialed in and people aren't kind of flying off doing other things. And then the third piece, which is not true for all businesses, but is true for most nonprofits. So if your nonprofit has a mission to solve a problem that has never been solved before, so if you're working to end hunger or homelessness or solve mental health issues, any of those things, you have to be great at innovation. And to be great at innovation, you basically need some sort of built-in process for improvement. You have to be able to experiment and improve and try things and, and have room to fail. That's where the capacity comes in um, and modify that. So really having those three things, capacity, actionable strategy, and a continual process of improvement is what it takes to really um, have success as a nonprofit. Yeah, no, those sound like um, definitely three key key areas that I'm often working with clients on as well. And one one I want to go back to because uh, with with capacity and what we were talking about before of when you can kind of set things on a on a process and and make it easier. You're not having to you know constantly decide. You know, you kind of for me when I when I have a good process, I know it's working well because I. I'm not experiencing that decision fatigue of having to make all sorts of little choices. And like you said, then have time freed up for that bigger thinking. Um, but what I see groups do, and there's a lot of pressure to scale up, um, is each time they, they, they do something smarter and they create a little space, instead of taking that time to think or think big, you know, think differently, not necessarily bigger, they add more add more, add more. And so, you know, while the, the kind of the promise is if you work smarter, you're not going to have to work harder, but then people add more. So they're still working harder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I think some of the ways that I tackle that one is in the process of improvement that I teach, it includes this concept of respite. And we also, I also just talk about brain space all the time. Mm. So, um, and so part of it is about this concept of like how we work, when we work. Um, but in another part of that is how you define the roles in the organization. So I'll talk about respite first. Um, so, you know, I already said like we work in these, we do strategic planning every two months. So it's a two month strategic cycle with many two week tactical cycles built in. 
if you put that into a 12 month calendar year, you will find that there are four extra weeks left over, um, which you totally gain back in efficiency and probably many times over. And so actually built into the framework as a thing is respite and respite are those extra four weeks. They're not really extra where organizations, I teach them to build this into their way of operating. And this is separate from vacation time. So respite is where you're not working on a goal, a big goal or a project. You might totally shut down. You might just do minimal operations. Some organizations do all four weeks at once. Some kind of do a week here and there. Some who have really like vital, you know, life or death services will scatter different people's respite. Um, so kind of like, um, what am I thinking? Like overlay it so that no, nothing is ever quite shut down as much. But starting to really like use a new piece of language, right? It's not vacation. I, I intentionally didn't use the word rest, although it's designed to like allow our brains to have that time. Um, but I call it respite because it's not a word we use a lot <laughs> in our everyday business. Um, so introducing that as an important concept and a thing that you're going to schedule in is really key. Um, and then when um, part of actually what I kind of think of it as a capacity piece is how you design your team. And a lot of people call this an org chart. Um, I take a slightly different approach because the, the traditional org chart is really like who is in charge of who. And I think to run any business better, what we really need to be thinking about is what are the functions of this organization? Like what if it were a machine, what are the pieces of the machine? What outcomes do we need each of those pieces of the machine to be producing? And then just who's in charge of those outcomes? And to me, that's what makes like um, a leader in an organization. We talk about like roles that are very like brain-based versus roles that are, we call, I say hands-based, but it's like doing the task versus um, being, you know, trying to get a result that you're not, don't necessarily have control over. And just as a side note, I find, you know, those who are leaders in many ways are people who they're, they're built for being responsible for things that aren't in their control, you know, kind of like a parent, right? Like <laughs> parents are natural leaders or they forced leaders because you're responsible for this, you know, a kid and you're not really totally in control of the outcome. Um, but, You've agreed to be accountable for it nonetheless. And within all these functions of what makes a nonprofit run, there's a really important role of, I call it visioning and innovation. And then you start to see that, especially if it's a CEO it's, or a founder is often owning this role of literally visioning and innovation. And they, that role requires a ton of brain time. Like, or we can call it my mom's solitaire time, right? Like you need to be paid to be just thinking because that's how we innovate is with a lot of thinking and problem solving. And so we start to embrace this as a valued role in the organization, as well as a valued activity that everyone's participating in. So, yeah, as you were saying, um, there are, you know, there there needs to be that downtime in organizations. And I think culturally we're so conditioned to always add more. Yes. And so I love the idea of the, you know, just taking those, not even take more protecting 
those four extra those extra four weeks um and and designating them for some downtime for some respite um for thinking time and and or just you know just not not doing 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 so that you can um and i i feel like when I don't, I don't know that I do. I'm, well, we all think all the time, if you've ever tried to meditate, you, you find that out real quick. Um, but if I'm concentrating on, on it, it, it doesn't necessarily work. So kind of doing something easy, like solitaire, as you talked about, uh, helps just like the brain relax. And then you start associating different things. And then, you know, it's like why we all we get our best ideas in the shower or on a good walk or something like that. But yeah, I definitely appreciate that. Uh, um, what you're, what you're sharing with people because the, the tendency so much is to just pile on new things. Yeah. And, you know, in the way um, you work too, you know, I referenced a couple of times, like we work in these two week sprints and I teach all my clients to do that is, the, one of the first things they realize oftentimes is the first time they've written down all the projects they're working on at one time. And literally we use a Kanban style, meaning like we put each our projects that are in progress in a column and the ones that are coming up next in another column. And once it's visual and I just tell them the rule is you can't work on more than three projects at once. And if you want to go faster, you should only work on one project at once. And it's visually there in the column. You see the boxes stacking up in the column and people start to realize what can they actually get done in two weeks? And they start to see that the impact of overloading their plates, of adding more and more and more at once is actually slowing them way, way down. And so as they realize that and see it in a visual way as well, they start to go, oh, less is more, <laughs> right? Less at a time is faster. I will complete more projects in a two-month period if I'm only working on one or two at a time. Um, and they start to realize that a lot of the things they think they're adding that are just little things um, are huge things. Like we need to rebuild our website. I can say it so easily. Rebuild website project. <laughs> I used to build websites professionally. They are multiple projects in one and your website is never done. So, um, you know, they start to realize like, you know, understanding how to pull things apart and understand the true load of what's on their plate. And that has all sorts of positive ripple effects. Like oftentimes I see, you know, board members start to really understand why this organization needs more resources and, and leaders start to really understand, oh yeah, I do need to be fundraising a lot more because I'm totally underestimating the true load that we're either carrying or that we're not carrying, but we need to be doing if we're going to make a dent in solving whatever the problem of our mission is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the other thing that doesn't get calculated in when you're thinking projects and some people's work, you know, is, is, is project focused, but other, you know, there's always those something I have to do every day, something I have to do every month or every week. And those regular repetitive, those things that you systematize, those kind of become invisible in those, mm -hmm. those um, kind of planning out all the stuff that has to happen. And so 
being mindful and remembering you've got to block space for the just those regular things as well is is really important. Yeah, totally. And we track those. And I have a number of ways that I teach my clients to track them. So it's not time consuming just to track them, right? Because sure. you don't want to spend more time tracking them. No. Than them. Yeah. So, but it can be as simple as um, every two months, each team member just like estimates, like what percentage of my work time is taken up by recurring tasks. Mm-hmm. And when they're at 80%, they don't have, I tell them, once you hit 80%, you don't have time for any projects. (laughs) And this is the time to hire or have the one project of streamlining so that you can get that 80% back down to like 50%, 60%, something like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So at the end of each episode, I like to ask an icebreaker question. And since we've been kind of talking about processes and systems, I'll, I'll choose this one. So what are the first 30 minutes of your typical day look like? Oh, coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I journal most days. Um it can vary. I have, I'm a single mom. I have a son. So there's usually getting him. I do what I need to do to be ready to get him ready for school and then face my day. But I will share when I was newly a single mom and launching a business in the most crazy time of my life, I had this, I called it like my super routine and it took about 30 minutes. I did 12 minutes of meditation, usually with my son sitting in my lap watching cartoons. <laughs> he was a little toddler at the time. I did the seven minute workout on my phone and I took a quick shower. And there is nothing like, even though each thing was short, there is nothing like a little bit of intentional, just you know, brain time, that's that brain time, right? I gave myself that brain time. I had probably a little more brain time in the shower too. And um, a little bit of body exercise and just that little bit of self-regulate, self-regulation took me through the hardest times in my life. Um, And with, with energy and strength and um, it was great. And it took about 30 minutes. Awesome. Yeah. We can optimize those things for sure. We can, or, or just fit in a little bit and you can fit in more later if when you have when you have time and space, but at least doing a little bit each day is really grounding. So what's coming up from you? What, what are you excited about and, and what's emerging in your work? Um, well, I continue to offer the Thrive Program, which is where I take CEOs from nonprofits who want to be like, I want to learn everything that Sarah is teaching and work with her every week. Um, so I continue to love offering that program. I'm really excited to be coming out with a new program called Pivot this year, um, where people who want access to all of the curriculum I use in the Thrive program, but aren't ready to dive in uh, with all the support and want to just try some stuff on their own. Um, That'll be coming out um, in 2023. And also I continue to do this board retreat that I developed um, in a number of board trainings related to it um, to really help 
boards get engaged. It comes with a new job description for the board. And the results from that have been so fantastic um, that I'm very excited to get it out there. And it's, it's, I'll just give you a sneak peek of some of the ways it's so different. I have boards no longer approving budgets. And yet they're more engaged with the finances than ever before. I have boards not participating in fundraising, and yet board members are more engaged in helping with fundraising than ever before. Um, And I have boards really starting to understand some of this, like how do nonprofits work stuff so that they can truly be supportive and have their leadership teams back um, in a way that just feels great to CEOs and never, ever hints on overstepping or micromanaging. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And uh, thank you for coming on Mission Impact. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciated what Sarah said about how to get practical about assessing capacity. This is so often a stumbling block for organizations. I find nonprofit folks to be very ambitious, often idealistic, and that doesn't always align with being realistic about how long it really takes to get things done. The tactical planning process that she describes using a Kaban board to visually see what is on everyone's plate and to see what's backlogged and what's getting in the way, using this consistently, you can start to track how long it actually takes to get things done and to see how the to-dos are distributed. A Gabon board is essentially a series of rows that you move work through from backlog to in progress to upcoming and done. I'll link to a couple examples in the show notes if you're not familiar with this method. The Trello uh, project management system is a good example of this. I also appreciate her approach of having each person estimate how much recurring work they have And then once that work hits 80%, that it's really time to hire another person or to streamline. And that at 80% recurring tasks, that person does not have the capacity to take on another project. I also appreciate how Sarah talks about building respite into your regular planning and to account for and visualize the regular ongoing work that everyone has. I have a bit of a different perspective on a couple things that Sarah said. First is her definition of strategic planning is really a little different from how I conceive of the process. From my vantage point, what she described is operational planning, especially given the timeframes that she describes at two months and two week intervals. And getting into this level of nitty gritty is super important to make sure that the work gets done. And at the same time, when I work with a group on strategic planning, they're looking out at a a longer timeframe, three to five years generally far enough out to be able to imagine and start working towards a few big goals or initiatives, yet not so far that it's just wishful thinking. And certainly the discipline that Sarah describes is a great approach to really implementing those bigger ideas. Thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. You can find out how to connect with Sarah, the full transcript of our conversation, as well as any links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. And I'd like to thank Isabel Strauss-Riggs for her support in editing and production, as well as April Coaster of 100 Windows for her production support. We'd like to hear from you. Take a minute to give us feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. And until next time, thank you for everything you do to contribute 
and make an impact.